Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you. Hello, and thanks for listening to another episode of All Better. I'm your host, Joe Van Wee. Quick announcement. This August, August 5th, that's a Friday, and it'll be first Friday in downtown Scranton. The Recovery Bank, with its co-host, the Lackawanna County Coalition on Recovery, will be having a celebration of recovery with music and speakers. That'll start at 5 o'clock. Uh, please stop down. Today is episode 27, and our guest is Dr. Nick Colangelo. Nick has spent decades in the drug and alcohol treatment field in many roles. And let's start with them. That started in 1975, three years before I was born. He started at Reynolds Hospital. That was Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. He was the aftercare coordinator of an alcohol recovery unit, 76. Nick was also on the Somerset Council on Alcoholism. There he was a Chrysler's counselor, and he was the director of the Kelly House in Somerset, New Jersey. That was a 12-bed detox center. In 1979, Nick became the director of the Sarah Mayo Hospital in New Orleans, Louisiana. He was also the hospital administrator of 200 beds and a detox center of 27 beds. In 1979, Nick worked for Lifemark Corporation, and that was Houston, Texas. There he was the director of the Westgate Hospital, alcohol rehabilitation unit with 40 beds. And at this time, he was also an acquisition researcher and a speaker, trainer, and consultant in Arkansas, Florida, Mississippi, New Jersey, Oklahoma, and Texas. In 1982, the Scranton family, the founders of Scranton, donated their summer residence of Waverly, PA, to Geisinger to become Marworth Treatment Center. In 1982, Nick became the president of Marworth. And at that time, he designed and built a freestanding family residence there of 20 beds. The treatment center had a 72-bed uh, for drug and alcohol treatment. He also designed and opened up an adolescent drug and alcohol treatment center with 60 beds on Shawnee on the Delaware in Pennsylvania for Marworth. In 1989, Nick designed and developed a 60-bed treatment center, Tully Hill Treatment Center in Tully, New York, near Syracuse. Moving on from Marworth, in 1989, Nick became the vice president of a 50-bed adult and 50-bed adolescent treatment center in Wilkes-Barre, PA, Clearbrook. In 1997, Nick became the president and CEO of Clearbrook Incorporated. At that time, he has designed and built a freestanding residence of the 20 beds in Shikshini, 
He redid the cafeteria in 2006, built a 67-bed detox and treatment center in 2009, and also gave the entire campus a rehab, adding new buildings and additions in 2012. Uh, Upon the sale of Clearbrook in 2019, Nick became the CEO of Brookdale Treatment Center, Swiftwater, PA. From 2001 to present, Nick is also the co-founder of Families Helping Families, free education and support programs in Pennsylvania, uh, focused in Scranton, Tunkhannock, Bloomsburg, and Dallas. Nick stops by today to catch up and have a chat. We talk about this prolific career and all the changes that have happened uh, in drug and alcohol treatment and some of the changes for good, some for bad, and where they, where they lie. One specific topic we talk about is medication-assisted treatments. And for lack of a better term, maybe stigmas that were attached to it or fundamental definitions of recovery that people in the last four decades had to loosen their grip on. And Nick saw this firsthand of how these became life-saving medications and wider paths to recovery for individuals. We do a kind of a deep dive and I learn a lot. Uh, and that was the point of this podcast, to learn in real time. So I hope you enjoy the discussion. And let's meet Nick. You're going to lead me off, right, with a question or something? Or Absolutely. Okay, go. We're live. Good, we're live. <laughs> uh, we're here with Dr. Nick Colangelo. Uh, and for full disclosure, when my friends are on here, we have a long running relationship and that started with my father and I wanted to thank Nick for coming here today and maybe add a little context to his visit. I've been trying to get him on the podcast, but I met Nick when I was probably six, five years old at Marworth with Digger in this enchanting <laughs> piece of real estate. <laughs> Uh, 40 years ago. Yeah. So, Nick, the reason I wanted to put this as a background was because about six months ago, I called you. Uh, I needed some guidance. I thought you uh, would be helpful. And I'm calling you. You say I'm in town. I run up to Starbucks. We meet. We talk for an hour. You drove away. And I'm driving away. And I had the weirdest feeling I've ever had. It was the first time I had this feeling after talking with you was that I was 44 years old. It's the first time I felt like an adult. (laughs) I'm saying this is because I'm like, wow, Nick, Nick was talking to me like I was his friend. And I've never, never had that connection until, you know, this last time I got sober, that roulette, my relapse was so brutal. I always felt like I was 16 around you. Like you were an extension of authority and I couldn't let that guard down and connect with you. You were always an extension of someone I was going to make sure I was going to do the right thing, whatever, in my head. And when I drove away and I've just spent a year in the drug and alcohol field, I was just washed with how like a veil dropped of what you did for not only myself, my father and my family in a time uh, when recovery wasn't too common. It was emerging locally in the 80s. I, I had a full new appreciation of who you were uh, in the lens of a, my 44-year-old self, looking back at a 16-year-old mind, I was like, oh, my God, you've, you've, you did things that saved 
not only my life, my father wanted to start the podcast to thank you on that. So I never got to thank you directly. For those oh, things. Thank you. So now that we're two adults talking. <laughs> no, I'm way past adult. <laughs> I'm 78 now with, with a 16 year old mind. <clears throat> You've been in this field for a long time. And in Scranton, our first footprint of immediate help was Marworth. What, how would you summarize? How did you end up in those doors and working at Marworth? Well, <clears throat> there's some kind of grace and other influences that there's no way we will be able to describe that. Um, <clears throat> matter of fact, there's a short story that goes with this. I, I visited Scranton when I was in my twenties. And of course I wound up in Carbondale and hit every bar there was. And I loved Scranton. And I remember going home and telling my parents that I was in Scranton and what a great place. And my father just shook his head. Now fast forwarded, married, working in Texas, and um, having a pretty nice career, um, and having seen uh, the brochure of Marworth at a table in California at a conference, I said, God help the person that's going to have to open that. I mean, there was a, an explosion of treatment centers taking yeah. place in the early 80s. And uh, lo and behold, I'm, I'm home for a holiday, and the headhunter calls me and says, uh, um, I have a... a project and I'm interested in talking to you. And I said, I'm not really interested. I'm happy where I am. And he said, Marworth. Really? And I said, I read the brochure. I said, what is that about? I said, I'm home for Christmas. I'll give you a call. Well, long story short, um, 1982, I wind up opening up Marworth. So there is some <clears throat> conversation we have. Are we planning? Are we chosen? How does it all happen? And, um, you know, for seven or eight years, uh, Marworth, I think, changed the landscape and recovery of what occurred in uh, Scranton. There were like seven meetings between yeah. Hazleton and Carbondale in yeah. 82. Um, there wasn't any real inpatient treatment. And the, the combination of it being the Scranton home, Geisinger, yeah. um, and uh, really a group of talented people that were assembled um, it was almost magical and mystical what happened and recovery exploded, which is still foundational in our area. Yeah. And so I was an instrument in that. In the country. Uh, in the country. As yeah. a matter of fact, uh, it, uh, I don't know, four or five years afterwards, we were in the top 20 in the country of a thousand treatment centers. So you were sober and, and to read a pamphlet, the names in your head, there's an intention set. You, you, whatever way you were thinking about it, it's just strange. I don't acknowledge those things when I'm drinking, but to have that word Marworth in your head, then get a call. Um, it just creates a more interesting life that you're more attuned. Like, do you, do you have more of those moments that? Yes. I, uh, my strange. whole career has been, um, uh, I applied for a couple of positions before Marworth and, and, and a couple after I have never, received a job that I applied for. Yeah. Someone always calls me on the phone and says, are you interested or we have this or we've heard this. Will yeah. you talk to us? And that is still occurring. 
That's wild. It, it, I mean, I uh, really the carp situation in West Palm Beach for the indigent that yeah. I, I was part of when their treatment center closed that large not for profit to take care of people for nothing for ninety days. Uh, a high school student that I had taught wound up on the board and had become sober from my hometown, and he called me. He said, "Will you come down and talk to us?" So. <laughs> There's another side conversation. Do yeah. we do, do we make our path or our and you know you were very kind with your words and what I want to say is that uh, I've been fortunate to be an instrument of change and goodness in a lot of people's lives and uh, you know my first thought getting sober was I'm going back to law school. Yeah, <laughs> we need more <laughs> and, lawyers. <laughs> and, and you know that that story is uh, fascinating in itself. Um, I was being uh, admitted to Seton Hall Law School, and I was walking out of the out of the, the building that night. And I stopped and I listened. And here's what I heard: "Is this your dream? Yeah. Or is it somebody else's?" And I heard, "It's your father's." And I said, "We're not going to do this again." And when I walked out of that law school, I knew I was never coming back. And I went and I talked to somebody and pointed me in another direction, and the rest is history. Yeah. It's so. I think getting sober sometimes has some of the same possibilities that my life has had on the, on, on the sober end. We're very um, uh, compelled to be pushing in a direction, yeah. doing the things to win that we want to win. And there are other forces operating around us. And then one day it all comes together and we go in a different direction. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Joe Van Wee. I'm the host of All Better. But I'm also the CEO of Fellowship House. And at Fellowship House, we believe long-term recovery requires a personality change as well as a clinical intervention. These ideas can take several months to achieve. Our philosophy is to provide a safe, therapeutic, and exceedingly active environment for patients to achieve these personality changes and find joy in the fellowship of recovery, which will allow for long-term sobriety. We believe that recovery extends beyond treatment and peer-to-peer communities into real life. In Fellowship House, we provide a design for living that focuses on education and service. We have strong relationships with the 12 universities and vocational schools in the area and ensure that our fellows pursue their personal goals while entering sobriety. We also stress independence and responsibility, making sure each individual is financially solid and self, and helping to make their community a better place. As a treatment center, Fellowship House offers both residential and outpatient treatment services to individuals and families affected by addiction and alcoholism. We're a DDAP licensed provider of general outpatient, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization programming, as well as a level of care assessments. If you want to find out more information about Fellowship House, please visit fellowshiphouses.com. I, I relate to that profoundly because it's subtle, and I think a lot of people have those moments. It's intuition. And if I skip too many of them, 
I get a lot of pain. I'm not living an authentic, my mm-hmm. authentic life. Correct. I created a life 16 year old Joe wanted. It wasn't any consideration with adult Joe because I didn't let him run my life that much. Like it was like uh, to run from fears and I skipped too many of those moments and um, the pain was overwhelming. But I think being sober, practicing some model, be it the 12 steps, it, it, it compels you to take the adventure. It's not boring. Like sobriety is not boring. It's, it's not just being sober. You're compelled to live an adventurous life that's more profound than being selfish. What a great word. There's a, um, a philosopher, Tillich, wrote a book that I read 40-some-odd years ago, uh, Life is an Adventure, about 76 <laughs> pages. And I read it, and I realized that I was on, it was early in recovery, and I was on the brink of an adventure. Yeah. Not a punishment, not a, a, um, a, a surrendering of a, an idealized uh, make-believe life. It's something new and exciting. And, you know, I told you what my age is. I'm still on an adventure. Yeah. And that just propels you into a, a lot of goodness and I think joy um, and excitement in your life. You, you want to get up in the morning. You want to get going. You want to go do things. Yeah. And it's the connection of people that augment all that. Yeah. I'm not sure you can do that in a vacuum and experience the same thing. I know people try to do it and it appears that they do it. But when I really look at successful people, there's combinations of connections that allow them and that whatever they have used to get themselves in a position to reprogram and go in a different direction, which are a variety of different things in the world today and in the world of recovery, um, it sets you free. Yeah. Because I was a prisoner of war. I believe you were the yeah. part of the life that I know about yours. I was tormented. And it's so self-consuming. And then when I would stop at a Clearbrook or Marworth, uh, I would forget how how far the answer demands you to go. I'm like, I just wanted to stop drinking. Like I thought I knew that's... Very important beginning, by the way. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> But it was scary because I couldn't make the leap of faith again. I understood it when I was a young guy, but it, that doesn't take hold in your brain. Uh, sometimes if you don't practice the principles, oh, well, let's just say of adventure for the sake of us, our, our, our dialogue of the steps of taking a risk, that integrity is more important than achievement or opportunity. I, I thought they would, they could have little wiggle room and I was getting lost in there. But um, where I was going with this, it's it's humbling when you connect with people and the way you have and for for decades of this treatment, it's what can you take credit for in the sense like you were you're an agent of change. You chose a life that connects to people and that's how people get better from the way we understand it. Like what? how many variables are involved? How can I take credit for things like all these things were in motion? I'm just open to be in the flow of it. You really should not take credit for it. Um, It is, um, you've been cast. You know, when I look at, look, somehow my whatever makeup allowed me to find great comfort in the work that I do. I have never since 1975, worked a day in my life. Now, that doesn't mean there haven't been some disappointments and difficulties. 
But I said I was going to do this because I had choices. I could have gone and done other things. Yeah. I was chosen or chose and and circumstances moved me over here. And I said, I'm going to do this to the first day. I don't love doing it. Wow. And I still love doing it. And it's, um, uh, you know, it's funny, you know, the things you remember being small. I came home one day, I don't know how old I was. And I, told my father, I said, I want to be Johnny Appleseed. And again, he just shook his head. Well, guess what? I wound up Johnny Appleseed. Yeah, you played. Of just a different sort. Yeah, sure. And uh, it's hard for me to articulate the joy that I have. You know, <clears throat> a year ago, January, um, Christmas Eve, uh, I contracted COVID. Yeah. And um, Scary. And then 14 days later, I deoxygenated and took my first ambulance ride. Wow. And I wound up in Geisinger for six days. And uh, I don't remember most of the ride. I don't remember the head of the hospital who met me there. Um, I vaguely remember the people in the spacesuits yeah. and the isolation and the conversation. The next day they came in and they told me I was going to get the Trump medications, the two IVs, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I couldn't brush my teeth. Oh, God. And... Um, I remember saying, well, I've been there once before. And I said, well, this is it. Let me do it right. And if not, can we please get me out of here? Yeah. Um, And as soon as the medication started, uh, the nose of the plane started up, which was grace in itself, I think. Um, But then I had my phone with me. And I can't tell you how many... Nick, we're praying for you. And, and you know what? It's all the flowers, all the connections. Yeah. All of that. And I was never alone for one moment in there. And, oh my I, and I was always, and I think that is what's hard to sell to a disconnected person yeah. about what the reward of connections are. Um, and, you know, I remember a person by the name of Connie F. Uh, who was a, died of a pretty bad cancer when I first came to Scranton. Yeah. And he said, look what I have around me. Wow. He said, it's over and I'm ready. I never forgot that. No, it's real. And and then I have certain things. So there is, um, it's almost romantic. It's almost a little bit of foo-foo stuff when I talk, when I talk like this. Um, But when you're laboring with people and you're genuinely giving and trying to help them and they get help, all you have to do is remember, don't take credit for it. Yeah. Or else you, I think you can get into a lot of difficulty. You know, I'm an instrument. I'm a ditch digger. You know, I just go around doing the seed work. And yeah. then that remarkable, um, no one can help anybody with anything unless there is this germination of a willingness. Yeah. I mean, I've been told what I could do to myself more times than I can remember or count. Um, and that's just not willing. And then I see the transitions along the way on various ways that they go through their pain and their moment of truth. And then what happens is they become willing to go follow some instruction and their whole life changes. You're an example of that. I'm an example of that. And there's countless millions of people around. Wherever I go uh, on the globe, I'm generally around recovering people. Yeah. So, you know, Yale to jail. Yeah. 
it's liberating. I want, I want to go back because the hospital, I've been, that's the first time I, I heard you have a, a health crisis that, you know, we're all aware of as a community. Um, I called you and I was talking to you and I, to be candid with you, that something was different. Like there was a, <laughs> I'm not saying you got soft. Nick, but there was a, a gentleness and a calmness that was kind of frightening to be on the phone with you to, to have someone calm. It wasn't nonchalant. Like I'll be fine. I'll be okay. You were calm. I want to explore that with you because was there a consideration when you were that sick? You've been sober so many decades that you might not leave the hospital. Did you have that thought? I had no idea whether I was leaving yeah. or I was not. Yeah. I, I, I had, it was uh look, there were people at that time uh, they were on respirators and they were passing away. And yeah. I, look, I've, I've worked around hospitals mm-hmm. in and out for my whole career. And um, I knew that uh, I was a candidate for a couple of reasons to wind up on a vent. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't. So, um, but I was between a belief that I have, um, not to be confused with religion who teaches you to believe in sure. things. I believe, me personally, and I wasn't alone, and I wasn't alone from the connected people, yeah. both family and friends and associations, not necessarily friends. So if you can be in a jam like that and not be alone, there is something extraordinarily comfortable yeah. and safe yeah. And then when the medicine started to kick in, I said, okay. I'm, I'm going to go. Yeah. I could get here. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't in great shape when I got out and I was still on oxygen. I had lost 30 pounds almost overnight and um, I wasn't a long hauler, but it, it took me some time to get back into shape. Yeah. Uh, and I'm grateful, you know? I, I love hearing that because I used to be cantankerous and, you know, just broody and thorny talking to you about submitting my will to a power greater than ourselves, this context of a 12. And what you described isn't pie in the sky to me. Like that's spiritual to me. Connection, association. There's something shared that's intangible, but I'm experiencing it and it's not fake. It's, it's beyond almost belief because you experience it. You're experiencing power. Um, That's what I was missing when I I had a stent in the hospital on a respirator the year prior to that. I woke up at, to the cellular level of my body was anxiety because I knew how alone I made myself because all I think about is myself and people started showing up at the hospital and from loneliness, it went to regret. I wish I had more time. I wish I connected more to, wow, I have it made get the hell out of here. But to hear that that's, that's spiritual. That's not spiritual nonsense or spookiness to me. Um, that's an axiom. There's a power in community connection that I can't, I, I can't describe. It's not me independently. I wouldn't be, if I didn't tap into that in time, I was in trouble. There is a, um, look, I was, I've been around religion my whole life too. And, uh, I'm not against religion. I don't get mm-hmm. into the theology, theological debate. I remember when you wanted to debate yeah, all please. that because, because of the confusion between religion teaches spirituality. It is sure. not spirituality. And it is up to the human being to interject into themselves yeah. their own sensing and meaning. You know, it, it, it kind of goes to Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning. Yeah. And 
once you have that and your imaginary friend, so to speak, sure. or however you want to elevate that, and your system of belief, which we call faith, but yep. belief, you know, you're kind of okay in almost any and all circumstances. And I've been blessed to be with people who are taking their last breath, and they're fine. Yeah. There's a okay. So there is a way. Yeah. But you cannot be chasing the material and think that that's going to give you the inner spiritual. You've got to serve a couple of masters on that. Yeah. Not that the outside is wrong. No. But the inner is where all the strength comes. And that's not what we learn in our society. And that's not what we're no, taught. No, we don't. We get taught there's a separation between man and the material world as if they're happening. It's, you know, it's hard to unpack this, but this material world seems to have existed prior to consciousness arriving. That's how we tell our story. Yeah. A lot of Eastern people don't do that. We emerged. We're, we're part of this story the whole time. We just now emerging as intelligent as a, pro- a product of it. We feel, you know, Westerners, I, I'm sure you have a Catholic background. I'm some soul that got deposited into this world. And that's hard to parse for me because I feel like an alien. It adds to my loneliness, these ideas, but I had to get over that with, I was suffering because of my cognitive thoughts and it's called addiction disorder. When I was sober, I wasn't getting relief at drunk. I was going into a later stage. There's a spirituality I can't fully define, but I was, I let go of my resentment in the first three months of where I wanted to make arguments, religion. This is a disappointment. This doesn't make sense. Um, I was going to run out of time, put my looking and talking that way. I was going to die because of something, what that happened for 10,000 years before I got here. Like, this is my beef now. <laughs> I'm like, Joe, cut the shit, get over it. Your friends are waiting for you to wake up your family. This is, I wasn't looking at that as the scenario I was looking at, but what if we're all wrong? Shouldn't I stay drunk? <laughs> Look, I have, uh, I have these little deals and, and, and we all talk, you know, but yeah. I had a friend that used to say, there's a better way. Yeah. That challenges people. So I have said, there is a different way. Yeah. Try it. Yeah. It's a different way. And you have, we all have to solve our own argument. Yeah. You know, arguing with somebody else is just a distraction. No, I'm still arguing with myself. I already <laughs> yeah. know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, if, and, and so <clears throat> what is the real goal? Well, let's use addiction as a model. Yeah. If I'll go to the, another story. So I had some hand surgery about five, six years ago. Okay. Simple surgery. But when it came time for me to come back, I was not in the room. I was in heaven. I was in some place that I had never, ever, ever been. I said, holy Jesus. And all I wanted to do was stay there and bathe in it. It was perfection. Nick, is this under the anesthesia? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, it's not. It's not the anesthesia that was doing no, it. It's no. something else. That it can't be. It's consciousness. No. There's something. And, and well, it's. But what happened was then there was an intruder into this perfection, and I heard this very distant voice. It's time to wake him up. And wow. All I could do is say, "I got to get her out of my life." Yeah. 
And then she grabbed my toe and I really got upset. And then she wiggled it. And I had to leave where I was is the way yeah. I explain it. And I wanted to come back and tell her, you know, get the hell out of here. <laughs> and my eyes just shuddered. And she said, okay, he's coming back. We're okay. Then I turned around and tried to go back. Gone. Yeah, it's gone. It, Door it, closed. It, it, it's, it's there, but it's less. And then it's less. And then what happens is I wake up. And then my consciousness and, and, yeah. and my fa- and then I say, okay. Ego's back. And I said. This sense of self. Self. And I say, what was that I was on? Propothal. Oh, my God. And I understood Michael Jackson completely. Yeah. I want to talk about this. This is so, crazy. So, so what's happening now is that I was, my mentor said that certain people are susceptible. We'll figure it out in a hundred years. Yeah. Um, or we won't. But what happens with all mood altering substance, it hits our brain in a certain place. It brands it as perfection. Wow. And it is stronger and better and the best orgasm you've ever had. Sure. And it is perfection and it's not allowed for mankind. Well, why wouldn't we go there? And why wouldn't we go to yeah. the gates of hell and death pursuing it? I think you, that's why you always understood addicts. You, it wasn't authoritarian. And I, I've always made that connection with you. You know what ecstasy is. Um, and that's hard to peel By someone the way, back. did that for me. Yeah, like the, I don't want to get off Everything topic. did it for me. Metaverse is scaring me. People are going to have better lives there. Forget the two-dimensional Facebook, like, screen. What if I created a life that's far more interesting from a trailer with a, a, an addiction that can now complement a fake reality? It's, it's frightening. I want to go back. I, I was on propofol for 19 days in a coma. <laughs> Not bad, huh? Yeah. Well, when you wake up, it's horrifying. Yeah, it I was hallucinating for a day or so. I don't know if it's from that or the brain or my oxygen. I don't know what caused it. Uh, but I all digital moths in there. Russell Prino sitting in the room. Chris Hinton sitting on my lap eating my sandwich from my coma. Hey, what the hell happened, pal? I'm like, why am I strapped to this bed? He goes, take it easy. We're gonna get, we got to try to get you out of here. Yeah. I'm seeing things on him. He's like, take it easy with the birds. You know, I was telling him there were birds in the room. He goes, we got to get out of here. Stop talking about birds. But I was starting, I was dreaming that whole time in that 19 day coma. And it was a nightmare, a total and utter nightmare of physical torture, which was like a hyper reality. People were wearing masks. Uh, It almost was cinematic. I'd escape from one room. It was like a twilight zone or a black mirror episode to escape into another tormentor's room. Nick, it was awful. And after a while suspended in that state of consciousness for that long, I lost track of where the sense of self was because I haven't been in my mind in a while. There's a sense of self. I can't see myself. It's like a POV of a human, but people in clown masses torturing me. I finally was getting killed in one of the scenarios. I'm getting tortured. And I'm looking up at a street lamp. It was almost like a, a film. That's just my imagination. And it was like a pen light from the, like waking me up. Like he's coming back. And I was like, oh my God. I was terrified to go to sleep for three months. Afraid that I would fall back into that realm of consciousness. And I was really disassociated with where is reality? 
because does this one matter if that one was that I experienced unsuspended from time? Um, that was real. Like it's, I'm not saying it's a, I went to a, a traveled to a material world, but what would the brain doesn't know the difference it's experiencing it. This I was experiencing it the same way that f, to hear you go to heaven. <laughs> this Irishman got sent and, and tw- I was tormented. I went to heaven. Uh, you went to hell. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Pro football. <laughs> well, and so let's say, call it a dream or a drug induced state. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> even dream state interpretation is pretty easy. You can come up with two conclusions. Yeah. Your, your dream state is either going to represent your best wishes. Yeah. Or your worst fears. Oh, man. And I think drug-induced states, based on everything that's going on with a person, you got the same choices. There isn't a neutral. Yeah. I went to a pleasurable. You did not. No. Um, <clears throat> both imprint the brain. Yeah. And the brain forgets nothing that it, 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 it imprints. Now, I will tell you that I cannot recreate that pleasure state. No. Unless... You had that. My, well, my belief would be if, if I had the tools or, or the doc to do it for yeah. me, he might be. But my other belief about what I know about addiction was I was only perfectly high once. Yeah. Now I, I can say twice. Once was with alcohol. I used other substance and one with propofol. Yeah. But every time I went to try and recreate it, yeah. it was less. Yeah. And never hit the perfect note again. No, I, I use music. So I have hit the perfect one under uh, one in a semi-conscious unconscious state of uh, propofol, the other one in ingesting of alcohol. Yeah. Um, however, the substitute for that is the pleasure and joy of redirecting how I live in my life yeah. today. And which brings us into the world today of everybody's trying to manage these states in a different way than the way I got sober and clean. Yeah. It's much more complicated. It is. It is. <clears throat> and we, we discussed this before. Um, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, I always, I'm putting this two in two lanes, if medically assisted treatment and the two lanes I unpack it in is in what I would call the social workers realm. The, the ethical obligation of I am just meeting people where they're at and I'm keeping them alive. I don't care what their idea of recovery is. Can I do harm reduction in a method that will help pr- save a, a life? The second realm would be as you and I have experienced and want to experience sobriety is this clarity of mind, a state. Um, I don't think they, I think they're going to converge into a dignified lane together because one keeps, you can't get dead people sober. We know that. (laughs) Um, So if the government had a role to play in making sure scripts are more accessible um, to life-saving MAT drugs, like for a city like Kensington, I'm all for this. Like this, this produces um, some really good benefits. We were talking about Canada. Uh, Gabor Mate's kind of uh, caveat of Twin Cities injection sites. I never looked at that before. I look at the data. It's, it, it makes you look at it and say, well, what is this? What am I missing? People are staying alive. That's the point. Do I want to stay alive? No, I want more than life. I want, I want, I want a clarity of mind. I want to feel alert. I don't want to be afraid of pain and constantly be in a state of seeking pleasure. That's recovery to me. 
It's almost Zen. And I, I know that is for you. Um, it's going to be hard because there's a big business is going to be involved. They're going to be marketing ideas, changing words for solutions. Um, I think there's a fight <laughs> that's going to just be unfolding. There is, um, you know, it was easier when I got sober. If, if you looked at the circle of addiction, uh, we had Vietnam and people coming back on heroin. Yeah. Um, and we had some marijuana and we had the pills of, you know, the seventies and Black the beauties, Val- <laughs> beauties <laughs> Valium, you know, Valium was a, uh, if you were a Valium addict, uh, they used it. They thought alcoholism was a Valium deficiency. Once upon a time, we used so much of it to treat, and then we created another addiction. Wow. And to have this conversation, first, I think you have to realize there's cylinders in addiction now. So let's say there's the opiates. Okay. Let's say there's co-occurring disorder. There's shrinking, but alcoholism. There's cocaine. There's pills. There's uppers. There's downers. The formula for addiction has not changed. Um, Yale Summer School I went to, David Smith. Um, it is dose plus frequency, plus physiological, plus psychological makeup equals addiction. There's your math. Okay. Yeah. That, but, but that varies it. from person to person. And then you got subgroups that come off of that. Yeah. But now we have everybody being specialized because that's what happens in our world. So if I'm a drug addict, I'm a drug, you know, well, I'm an opiate addict, I'm this, I'm that. Well, first of all, fentanyl changed the game. Yeah. Fentanyl, I call instant death. Yeah. Now, not for everybody, but if you catch the wrong one, you're dead. Yeah. And so what is our responsibility and addiction and the recovery community and the treatment community? Well, I would say the same thing it was when alcoholics went into the hospital, which you save a life. Yeah. So you use all the medicines that you have. Now, in that, you're still going to have mental disturbance. You're going to have mental illness. You're going to have sub and acute, you're going to have a variety of things. And my observation, and I want it to be a criticism, is we don't triage and identify appropriately. Okay. What we're doing, we're generalizing. And there's an overlay on this of the usual corruptions of money and power. So you've got the pharmaceutical companies that can't make money if they're selling less of something. They have to do the most stuff. And then you've got the addiction community and the treatment centers and the docs, how they earn, the, how everybody earns their money. And we haven't had this conversation or no. ferreted out yet. And that has to come. And then there is a third one that is like a third rail. I was at a meeting once um, at Geisinger, I don't know, 35 years ago. And the conversation come up as suggest, suggesting the discussion of legalized drugs. Just legalize it all. Yeah, Take all this conflict out of it. Decriminalize it. Stop the billions and billions that we're wasting trying to combat something that's a runaway train. And uh, I won't use the name, but uh, he was a senator, and he said, we'll bomb the known world before that happens. <laughs> that was the answer. What right? an answer. Oh, my. And, you know, when you go to Europe— which is in America, mm-hmm. and, and you sit in on conferences and you talk to people, they're more open to at least having the conversation. Yeah. You know, economically, life-saving, 
um, I could probably come up with if we legalized all the drugs, needles and everything, and then committed all the money saved to treating what wound up the illness. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure somewhere like 75% of America is taking some kind of pharmaceutical now to begin with. Yeah. Um, I will tell you, when I got sober, that was about 10, 12%. Well, how did all that happen? Marketing. So everybody, we go back to the spiritual part of our conversation. Yep. Nobody's working on that because we keep saying, if you take this, your headache goes away. If you do this, this goes away. And then the addiction gets caught up in it. And then there is the great economics of drug addiction, both in the um, poverty and how they're earning a living, how the undereducated are earning a living, how law enforcement... I mean, it's a very complicated conversation. Yeah, I don't think we can handle all that. In, in, in well, the-, the conversation's happening, and you've been a part of them. And yeah. you, the, territorial, like where are wherever you are geographically, it's a different conversation. It could be, you know, more open to these ideas. I live in a country. I spent the first thirty years of my life. Ninety percent of the villains in movies were drug dealers, cartels, and it was, you know, you could spend two hours waiting for this guy to be butchered and killed in the most glorious way. And that's how the film ended. <laughs> like <laughs> victory is. And without that kind of stuff here, I mean, there, it's an unbridled emotion charged with the idea of legalizing uh, drugs that it, are intravenous. But data's data is um, data. And I think the discussion needs to get a little longer, more intelligent because we just lost a hundred thousand people. We're not going to solve it. The same way if saving lives in collapsing cities from here through the Rust Belt is not going to work by what was being used. And I, 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 th- I think we know that. But to have the discussion, do you see, where do you see it happening the most intelligent here? Like push, who are the most intelligent voices? Well, I, think, I think I was at least part of a group <clears throat> yeah. that did that. In the, uh, and what we were doing is we were treating people with, questionable MAT yeah, uh, in detox. And by the way, some of them were coming from Kensington. Yeah. And um, they told us what we were doing was different. And we were using drugs to stop the pain, moving them on to MAT with the 12 steps and 12 traditions hanging on the wall mm-hmm. and being part of the lectures, not on either or. And having them participate in, based on cows testing yeah. and um, very, very thorough histories. And some of them said, I've been at this for 15 years. I want to come off everything. Yeah, They were the lesser of that, I will tell sure. you. Sure, sure. Uh, and we did that and we supported them. And then we sent them on to other treatment facilities. And then there were those who would go so far and say, that's it. Now, because of the fentanyl dragon at your head, what the patient now says should be respected. And if they say, I'm down to 20 milligrams, that's where I want to stay. Well, I think that person should also be able to go to an outpatient clinic or somewhere and not be rebooted up beyond, or if they're down to 15 or 10 and have somebody say, oh, no, you have to be on this. Because the brain science doesn't have the willingness quotient. So you're assessing 
the willingness of the individual of where they want to be. We didn't do that with alcoholism. Alcoholism was here's where you're going to go. Here's (laughs) what you're going to do and cetera, et cetera. But we did not have the imminent death. Yeah. White powder, stronger drugs, heroin, uh, speed to a certain degree, but absolutely fentanyl has changed the game and should change the conversation. So medicine has to be the first front of stabilization. Let's not even call it detox. Yeah, yeah. It's the emergency room for the addict. And then there is a negotiation going on, which now has corrupted a little bit yeah. of the straight alcoholic because now they want to say. So we will work out that. But I think the responsibility of everyone in treatment, from the doctors to the medicine people to the outpatient to the pharmaceutical companies, is this. There ought to be in that paradigm. You can possibly get here to a reasonably comfortable life if you're willing to try, and we're going to help you. And that's exactly what I got out of Mamey's book of... um, Realms of our ghosts. Yeah. You're yeah. treating individuals. Yes. See, we're used to group process and the treatment centers group it. It's harder work. You need more data. You need more data processing and you need to individualize the person in a simulcast of a circle of assistance. Uh, and I, th- I'm hopeful we're going to, there's new research coming out about actually using fentanyl. Yeah. Um, um, as a detox drug. So you don't go into, um, you know, a day or two and and in a proper dose, why should a person go into an emergency room and suffer? Yeah. Why? Because we think it's good for an addict to suffer. Yeah. If we have medicines, you stop that and you bring them down. Then they say, well, some people will come in and abuse that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You don't think people abuse our emergency rooms? Yeah. Well, where's the dignity in life? Ah, Respect and dignity, if you're going to call it a disease, treat it like a disease. And every person has a say in their treatment. Yeah. And it's hard work. So It's harder work. So I am encouraging people to get out of this. Um, and by the way, once upon a time when pharmaceutical companies first came out with uh, Suboxone and the way yeah. they were using I was opposed to it. Yeah, sure. It's, 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 because of... Just because it looked like it was an assault on, on, on people. And it was. Yeah. It actually was. Now, I think we will refine how it is used, what dosing is used, involve the patient in the participation, first save the life, then give them the opportunity to experience what you and I talk yeah. about, if they so choose. If they choose. And, and now here's the other thing. If they do not choose that, and they choose to be maintained in some way, should they not be treated with dignity and acceptance? And should there not be a unanimous treatment industry that respects that? Nick, that's a great place to jump off because there's a conclusion to that. Listening to you say that has guided me. I read that book two years ago and it was enlightening to me. I was the first time I I really considered this. I thought I knew there's one brand, one road to this little fanatical. And I didn't know I was thinking that way. Um, and I wasn't an opiate addict, uh, to hear you discuss that after four decades in treatment to not only admit that this is going to take a lot more work. It's not a simple answer. It's, but there is a modality you just described 
that can start to be created, that gives people dignity, a couple options on their way to a, a form of recovery. Um, we need more people talking like that. And I, I would love to talk again okay. <laughs> about this because it's complex. And I think we, we still have great allies that don't understand yet that we need to kind of hear that like, Oh, this is this complex. And that's people in the community peer to peer to support this publicly or politicians to understand they're not, you know, doing something reckless by understanding this, this is where the money and um, regulation should go to protect people in this clinical settings. It's individualized treatment. I can listen to someone on heroin talk about not only what they might need, what could be helpful to them, um, that wasn't the case 40 years ago uh, with just alcoholism, like you said. I want to make one statement, too. Yeah. Uh, harm reduction is misused. Yeah. And it's a shield to over-medicate, in my opinion. Harm reduction. By who? By who, though? Uh, the, the, by, by the system, by the system, yeah. pharmacies, by anybody pushing the medicine, yeah. just like they did with Valium or anything else. For profit. Um, but I go there lightly because... Yeah. That's where people go. That's our, the world yeah. we live in. Harm reduction is that there will be a group of people, unfortunately, that will never get the opportunity you and I have because of the formula of physiologic and psychological makeup. Yeah. So here's my question. What is the treatment world between mental health and addiction's responsibility to provide comfort to that group? That's what comes out of realms of our ghosts. Yeah. We do not do that in this country. When our systems don't work, we just drop people to the street. Yeah. And all you have to do is walk around the street and see that. It's cruel. Yeah, it it's is. It's very cruel. So, challenge. Nick, I want to thank you for coming on again. Um, and I'll talk soon. I think we have to go get lunch now with Leo and Dick. We do. Right. Thank you. Right, Wonderful. <laughs> I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of All Better. You can find us on allbetter.fm or listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Alexa. Special thanks to our producer, John Edwards, an engineering company, 570 Drone. Please like or subscribe to us on YouTube. Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not on social media, you're awesome. Looking forward to seeing you again. And remember, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're right. Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. And a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder.
Thank you.